war was over. He got married in 1946, but because of flashbacks and nightmares, he turned to alcohol and became a raging alcoholic. But in 1949, was invited to the Billy Graham Crusade in Los Angeles, California. And there, the one who had been far from God and hostile to anything to do with religion, who had demonstrated true grit in his humanity, bowed before the Savior and put his trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. He had been no friend to Christianity before. His story could be multiplied many times. Jim Voss was a next in command of the mob in Los Angeles during the same period of time under a mob boss by the name of Mickey Cohen. He found himself at the same crusade, and he, like Louis Zamperini, came to know Christ as his Savior. Many of you know the story of Chuck Colson, Richard Nixon's hatchet man, ruthless, in his politics and how when Watergate came down and he was sentenced to prison, came to faith in Christ. Or Nikki Cruz, who was told by David Wilkerson, the founder of Teen Challenge, that Jesus loved him. He slapped David Wilkerson, threatened to kill him. That happened two times over. But when Wilkerson held an evangelistic event and many from Mickey, Nikki Cruz's gang went forward at the altar call, Nikki as well, feeling guilty over what he has done, bowed before the Savior and came to faith in Christ. We could label each one of those men a tough nut to crack. <laughs> you see, in evangelism, there is what we call low-growing fruit. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch was, root fruit ready to fall off the tree had gone to Jerusalem to worship God, was on his way home to Ethiopia, reading the Scriptures, searching for God, wanting to know what the book of Isaiah meant when he spoke of Jesus being in prophecy, Jesus being led as a sheep to the slaughter. And no sooner did he hear the message proclaimed that he trusted in Christ, he was low-growing fruit. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are the tough nuts to crack the kind of which we spoke. And the greatest of those in all the history of the church, no doubt, is a man by the name of Saul, later called Paul, by whom we, or by which we know him. His conversion is perhaps the most important event in the history of the church other than Pentecost, because every one of our lives have been affected by his conversion as he went to the Gentiles with the message of the gospel of grace. If I were to ask you if there was someone in your circle of relationships who was a tough nut to crack, I would imagine that probably every hand here would go up because there could be a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter who fits into that category, who have no time for Christianity, who may be hostile to the faith, 
don't want to hear about it, don't want to submit to it, don't want anything to do with it. They are tough nuts to crack. I see lots of head nodding. And there are some here this morning that were tough nuts to crack before they came here and found Jesus Christ. All right, Bubba? <laughs> and so what is our response to those tough nuts to crack? Is there any hope for them? What is our part? What can we learn from the conversion of Saul, the enemy of Christianity, who became Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ? In the grand scheme of things, the book of Acts is all about what Jesus continues to do in the church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Bodily, he is in heaven. He is one with the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit, he works in the church of Jesus Christ to win not only the low-growing fruit, but the tough nuts to crack. And in this chapter, Luke, the doctor, friend of the apostle, begins to validate the apostolic ministry of the Apostle Paul as the successor to the other 12 who went out preaching the gospel in other regions. He becomes the key point person for the ministry to the Gentiles. When we ask people to share their story in discovery class or in evangelistic training classes, we do it and ask them to share it in three parts, what they were before Christ, how they came to Christ, and what they are after Christ, and we're going to look at Paul or Saul as we see him in the text in the same three points. First of all, what he was before Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he, if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Notice in the text that Paul was still breathing threats and murder. We were introduced to Saul in the end of chapter 7 when he was standing, presiding over the stoning of the deacon by the name of Stephen who had preached the gospel with great clarity and power to the Jews. And in rage, they took him out, and they began to throw stones at him, and they put their clothing at the feet of, the, of Saul. He presided over it, demonstrating his absolute hatred of Christianity. But now he is breathing threats and murder. I was laying in bed last night, and I was thinking about the passage. It's rather trite, but the story of the little, little red riding hood. No, the three little pigs. Sorry, three little pigs. How the, how the wolf huffed and he puffed, breathed out to, to cast the house down. Well, Paul breathed out threats and murders. You see, Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And in the Old Testament, Jacob predicted concerning his son, Benjamin, that he would be a ravenous wolf. And here's a son of Benjamin who is indeed a ravenous wolf, and he had tasted the blood of Christians, and he wanted more. Paul would never forget, as Paul, that he had once been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, and he was that. Luke 
the friend of the apostle, no doubt writing with the apostle's stamp of approval, calls what Paul did murder. And that's exactly what he was guilty of. He asked letters to the synagogues. You see, the church had been scattered. And some people scattered 140 miles north of Jerusalem to Damascus. And he wanted to search them out and bring them back to Jerusalem. They were of something called the way, a reference to Christianity that is used repeatedly in the book of Acts. Speaking of Christianity is the way of life, perhaps capitalizing on Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he went there to bind not only men, but men and women to take them to Jerusalem to see to their persecution and perhaps murder. Think radical Islam. What they do today to Christians is what Paul or Saul did then. And there may be people that you know that are just like him. Some of them may simply be apathetic but some are openly hostile and they don't want to be spoken to of it. We were talking about it at staff meeting this week and one of our staff members talked about their family, a segment of their family actually mocking them for their faith in Jesus Christ and the work in the ministry. And some of you have loved ones, friends or neighbors at least <clears throat> who fall into that and they are walking in the darkness of sin, bound up by Satan himself. Well, that's what Paul was before, while he was still Saul. And I think it's noteworthy that in this testimony, he doesn't take a, a great amount of time about speaking what he was before, rather the bulk of the time is how he came to faith in Christ and what he became afterwards. And that's what he highlights. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? My brother shared some weeks that we come from a state where wrestling is one of the main sports. And we had to take it in physical education in high school. And we had to learn, first of all, that Major points get scored when you do a takedown. Two men are on the mat and they're looking at each other and they're jostling for position and then one of them makes a leap and takes down the other. Well, this is the takedown of Saul. It's interesting to me in the text that the Ethiopian eunuch came up, asked, asked Philip to come up in the chariot. But proud strong-willed, strong-minded persecutor of Christian Jewish man is brought down into the dust. And sometimes it takes that for those who are tough nuts to crack. We learn later in the book of Acts that it's high noon when this takes place. And when it says a light shines from heaven at night, high noon, it had to be really pretty bright. In fact, some believe it was a column of light in the midst of the sunlight. And we learn it's implied in verse 17 of the text we'll look at in a few moments, but spoken of later that 
the apostle here saw Jesus Christ. He testifies to that in his epistles, that last of all, he saw Jesus Christ at this moment in this life, though implied here, not clearly spoken. And he was never the same as this light shone from heaven. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? He recognizes a supernatural being. And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul was persecuting the church. The phrase speaks of the oneness of the Savior with his church. And when people resist your message and resist you, they are resisting Jesus Christ. Jesus continued and said, why are you kicking against the goads? That's what the picture is all about. That little long-stemmed um, instrument in the farmer's hand, that's a goad, which they prodded the animals to move ahead. It's another picture of one in this picture. And Saul was kicking against the goads because the Spirit of God had been attempting to reach his heart. He, no doubt, or in all probability, had heard the message of Stephen as the goad pricked his heart. But he resisted. He kicked against it. When he had the coats gathered at his feet while Stephen was being stoned, he heard Stephen pray, Father, forgive them. He no doubt heard Stephen say, Lord, receive my spirit. He had seen the spread of Christianity. He had perhaps heard of or at least seen the miracles, seen or at least heard of it. But he had resisted. He was rebellious. He was a tough nut to crack. He wanted nothing to do it. He had an intense hatred for Christianity. And so he is asked by Jesus, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so we read in verse 6, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. It was like a stun gun. He's trembling He's driven to the ground. He's in the dust. He's humbled before a mighty God. You see, if the creator is greater than his creation, that light that shone from heaven, the creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all his brilliant glory, shining brighter than the sun, brought this man not simply down to his knees, but down to the ground in front of him. Verse 7, and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Saw, saw, they didn't. Saul heard a voice speaking to him and understood the verse, understood the words. They heard a voice, but we learn later in Acts that they didn't understand any words. It was like thunder to them in the midst of the midday sun. 
But they were consequently speechless. But he, verse 8, then he rose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, I want you to focus with me a few, few moments on this verse. Saul was one who had seen physically, but he was spiritually blind. He then becomes physically blind so that he might spiritually begin to see. Interestingly, it is three days that he's blind. Jesus Christ went to a cross in all of his humanity, in his flesh, and he died in the flesh. Three days later, he rose from the dead in his resurrection body, a new man. Saul <clears throat> went into darkness for three days. Saul, the old man, went into darkness, and three days later, he's a new man in Jesus Christ alive and well, living by the resurrection power of Christ within him. And from that time forward, Paul would be mindful of the fact that people who do not respond to the gospel have their eyes blinded to the truth. He would write in the book of 1 Corinthians, even if our, 2 Corinthians, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. What do you think he's referring to at that time? He's thinking back to his own conversion. When the light of the, of the Son of God shined upon him, and he who had blind was blind could now see. My friends, when you share the gospel with someone, and as clearly as you can share it, point by point, it is so simple. All men are sinners. Christ died for our sin. We simply need to put our trust in Jesus Christ and receive it as a gift, and they just don't get it. It's because they've been blinded by the God of this age. And remember that. It's the blindness that the God of this age has cast upon them, and their eyes need to be opened like Saul's was by Jesus Christ himself working through the Holy Spirit. We have friends and we have neighbors whom we shared the gospel with more than once who have heard it crystal clear, and they just don't get it. It's the blindness that is upon their eyes. To King Agrippa, Saul would, or Paul would later say these words, Jesus declared to me, I send you now to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife or your dad or your mom or your grandfather or your grandchild who is resistant to the gospel is living in darkness, captured by the power of Satan. 
But if Jesus Christ can release Saul, he can release any tough nut to crack. I've come up against some tough nuts to crack in my ministry more than once, but seen God in the process of time bring them down so that they look up. It may take a cataclysmic event. It may take overwhelming conviction of their hearts because of the love that's been shown to them and the guilt for their response. It may take a sickbed it may take a foxhole. We hear of foxhole conversions, and there are such, and they're genuine, they're real. It may take a prison cell. It may take a nursing home. It may take a diagnosis of terminal death in a matter of a short time, an accident, the death of a loved one, a biopsy. But when there's tough nuts to crack that you love, you say to God, whatever it takes, Lord, whatever it takes. And you yield them to that. And you pray that they respond to the compassion and wooing of the Holy Spirit. But if they will not, their eternal destiny is far, of far greater importance than any physical being, eyesight or other. And you pray whatever it takes. And so we come to the major portion of the text, what he became afterwards, after he came to Christ. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. <laughs> I imagine he was. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Notice Ananias is told to go to a street called Straight. Why is the street mentioned in the text? All, every word's important. In Damascus today, I understand there's still a street called Straight. It runs straight from east to west in the city, there since this time. Mentioned in the text because from this point forward, this man who had been brought into the dust would have no zigzags about his life. There would be no ups and downs and away from God, backsliding and back to God. He would have one vision in front of him at all times. I press toward the call, toward the upward call in Christ Jesus. Every moment of every day would be marked by his pursuit of Jesus Christ, that he might know him and the power of his resurrection. He would press toward that goal. He would not seek the glory of men. He would so declare, because he wanted to live a straight life in aim for pleasing and walking with Jesus Christ. He would go to the house, he would be at a house of a man by the name of Judas. The name Judas means praised, and no life should be more praised than that of this apostle. No life so deserving, no life so zealous, no life with so much energy expended, no life who endured so much suffering, no life that bore more fruit than this apostle because he was living a life 
pursuing the goal of walking with Jesus. Verse 13, then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. <laughs> I cannot read this, but think it's hilarious. As Ananias gives God some information. <laughs> but you know, I thought about this. It'd be like being a Jew in the days of World War II and knowing at any moment the Gestapo could be bursting to the front door and you're told that you need to go and bear witness to Adolf Hitler. Or you're in hiding in North Korea today and the military burst through the door, couldn't burst through the door and you're told you got to go give witness to Kim Jong Doon or Un or whatever his name is, or to Xi Jinping in China. That was a scary moment for Ananias. No wonder he gave God information. He was thinking he's better off blind. <laughs> Verse 15 And the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That word chosen means to be chosen from a place of love. God brought him low, but it was because God loved this man. But he chose him so that he might be a vessel. You know, vessels, there are different vessels of different kinds in all of our cupboards, and they all have a unique purpose. The cups are in our cupboard because they hold tea or coffee or hot chocolate. The glasses because they hold water or soda. The plates because you spread your main course on them. The bowls because you put your salad in them. Every vessel has a unique purpose. And this man was designed by God from the very beginning in his mother's womb as a vessel with a unique purpose to take the gospel to the Gentile world. He was schooled in Jewish law, so he would go to the Jews first. He was trained to make tents so he could be self-supporting. He was raised outside of Israel, so he was accustomed to Greek Gentile culture. He was a Roman citizen, so he could use his citizenship to get where other people could not go uniquely designed by God for this ministry. And even as he had called others to suffer, he was going to suffer. But he would witness to Gentiles. He would witness to kings, King Agrippa, Governor Festus, and perhaps Emperor Nero. We don't know for certain, but perhaps because he was in Rome in prison to, to, at the time of Nero. And he would suffer through it all. But he was chosen for that purpose. You know, as I think about this, every one of us is a vessel. We're all unique. We've been wired with different personalities. Paul was wired with a grit that was like Louis Zamperino. He could endure anything. 
We're wired in different ways with different personalities and different gifts and different physical makeups for the unique purpose that God has for us where we live on our street corner to bloom and blossom where he has planted us and to reach the tough nuts to crack that he's brought into our lives. Well, Ananias was convinced, verse 17, Ananias went his way and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and he was baptized. At this point in time, Ananias passes off the scene. We never hear of him again. We don't know what happened to him. He's gone from history, from known history. But he's the obscure person that God used to bring this tough nut to crack, to faith, not, not the faith, that was already there, but to send him on his way in his Christian life and to help him with immediate initial steps. I doubt whether many of us could name the man who led Billy Graham to Christ or the man who led D.L. Moody to Christ. Obscure individuals. But you may be the instrument that God uses to prick the heart of a tough nut to crack or to lead them to Christ or to help them with their initial steps in Christianity. And they will far outshine you in their notoriety. But Ananias is recorded in history in this text, and he will be seen before the judgment seat of Christ as one who found faithful because he went to a dangerous place when God commanded And so we see three things that happen in this verse. First of all, he got, his eyes were open. He was no longer blind. He would see now, not only physically but spiritually. Second, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Repeatedly throughout Acts, it's the Holy Spirit that must work in us and through us. It was the Holy Spirit that enabled Saul, who became Paul, to impact the world in which he lived. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not in our own strength that we can win anybody, impact anybody. We must be filled each and every day. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he was baptized, immersed, put under, demonstrating his death to an old way of life where he had been spiritually blind and his resurrection to a new way of life as he walked with Jesus Christ. And so we read in verse 19, so he had... When he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Immediately he began to testify that Jesus was and is the Christ, the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed, and they said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his, this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the rat chief priests? Radical transformation. That's what we're about as a church, is to see lives radically transformed. And whether someone is a mild, sympathetic ear like the eunuch to the gospel and needs his life transformed, or whether he's one hostile to the faith and a tough nut to crack, 
all transformation is radical because we have lived formerly in the flesh away from God, and now we live by the power of God. Life changed. That's what it's about. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Notice the text says, as he increased in strength, he began to prove that Jesus is the Christ to the Jews. He immediately preached that Christ was the Son of God, but as he increased in knowledge and strength, he began to see the Old Testament for what it was so that he could prove to the Jews that Jesus was the messianic fulfillment of all those prophecies, and he continued to preach Christ to these Jews. And so we see four important steps after he received his sight for him to be used of God and to begin his journey being a vessel now for God to Gentiles and kings and Jews as well. Baptism, number one. If you haven't been baptized, we encourage you to identify with the Lord publicly in baptism. It's a first step logically in our walk with Jesus Christ of discipleship. To be filled with the Holy Spirit each and every day. To confess your sin before the Lord. Say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Fill me today. To testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then to increase faith by continuing in the Word of God. So that you can prove from the text the truth of the Word. I want to draw four applications Really, no, three applications before we close this down. Number one, no person is beyond God's reach. No person, no tough nut to crack is beyond God's reach. Don't give up. David Wilkerson had to be slapped twice by Nikki Cruz. He kept at it. You not, not preach every time you speak to them, but you sure pray every day for them. Howard Hendricks, esteemed professor at Dallas Seminary now with the Lord, said he prayed for his father who was blatantly hostile and resistant to the faith for decades. And then one day, a pastor from the Northeast visited a seminar where Hendricks spoke and heard Hendricks speak, and not long thereafter, he was driving down the street, and he saw on the church bus, and he saw a man on the street corner that looked like Howard Hendricks. He pulled the bus over and said, you wouldn't by chance be the father of Howard Hendricks. You look just like him, and the man said, yes, I am, and he befriended him, and he began to spend time with Howard's father. Week after week, he listened to Howard's father boastfully talk about his life, dominate the conversation, never let the the pastor have a word in edgewise, and then he ended up in the hospital with cancer, terminal cancer. And the man went to the hospital, and he says, Mr. Hendricks, I've listened to you talk a lot. Would you listen to me talk for a little bit? And... um, Hendrick's father trusted Christ. And what a phone call it was when Howard in Dallas, Texas, got the call from this pastor 
regarding a genuine conversion of his father, who then said to his son at a later time, I now am under the authority. He was a lifetime career military man. I'm now under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, never underestimate the value of one person brought to Christ. You may only have the opportunity in life to lead one person to Christ. Never underestimate the value of that person because you don't know what that person might accomplish with his life. Ananias perhaps had no idea, even though he had been told, how far-reaching, not just in that generation, but for 21 centuries or whatever, the influence of this man would be. And finally, third, you may be here today in one of those hostile to the faith or apathetic at best, and you've been dragged to church. You are not beyond God's reach. You may think and say, well, you don't know what I've done. There are so many people that don't come to faith because they believe that they don't have to, they have to deserve it and they have to improve their life first. I'm not good enough to put my faith in Christ. I don't know how many times I've heard that in my life. They don't get it. Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a murderer, a violent man. He never forgot that. And no matter where you are, you are within the reach of Jesus right now. Submit to the wooing of the Spirit of God upon your heart. Don't wait until you end up in a prison cell or in a, a terminal bed in a hospital as a result or, or, or in, in critical condition as a result of an accident. Submit to it. He wants you now. Everyone here has a dark side. Every one of us. We're sinful by birth. Physical blindness after conversion was the story of the Apostle Paul so that he could spiritually see. If you are here without Jesus Christ, you are blinded by the truth, captured by Satan. Jesus is reaching out. Trust him, believe in him, receive the gift of eternal life by faith alone in Christ alone. And at the moment you do, the blindness will leave and you will see Jesus clearly and you will walk with him and know the joy of walking with Jesus Christ. <laughs> One of the greatest stories in history that continues to touch my heart is reflected in the words of a song we sang not too many moments ago written by John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Newton's father was a slave trader. His mother died when he was a young, very young boy. He grew up in the foot, living in the footsteps of his father. He became a slave trader. And while at sea in a violent storm, he cried out, God have mercy. And within 11 hours, the sea became calm. He went back to England. He never involved himself in slave trade once again. At the age of 47, he began to pen the words of that hymn, which is sung over and over by many people who do not know Jesus Christ. 
As he aged, he began to lose his memory. He died at age 82. He had testified of his conversion. He had um, pastored a church. But he was losing his memory. But as he lost his memory, he said, I still can remember two things. Number one, that I'm a great sinner. Number two, that Christ is a great Savior. I have to think that every time Paul came to a table, and he quoted the words of Jesus, and the Lord, after he had given thanks, broke the bread. I have to think that every time he perhaps reflected on the facts that he had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, but out of the grace of God, he had been saved, and he thanked Jesus Christ again. And so today, as we come to this table, I want to invite you to reflect on what you were, but you no longer are, and thank Jesus for saving you and forgiving your sin. If you're visiting with us, please be invited to share on our table. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, would you all please stand as our worship team comes. Move out of your row to your left, back into your row to your right. Hold the elements. We'll give God thanks together for what he has done for all of us, even as he ministered and did for Paul.
It's all about grace, God's grace, grace toward the apostle, grace toward us. And so let's take a moment, a reflective moment to think what we once were and to personally give God thanks for the forgiveness of our sin through Christ and for bringing us to himself. Father, I want to thank you that you've transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That you removed the blindness, the spiritual blindness of our eyes and opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. 
to you belong the praise and the honor and the glory. And somehow in your magnificent plan, God, you have chosen us to be a vessel in the circle of relationships in which we live. And we give you thanks. Thanks that you've taken unworthy sinners. You alone are worthy. We thank you for the bread and for this cup. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. His body for you and for me. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, but because of the blood of Christ, we are forgiven. Well, if you have a tough nut to crack this week, go after him again, at least on your knees, and uh, don't give up. Do you have a seat for a few moments? I'm going to ask the elders if they would come forward, and uh, Adam Stewart, please, if you'll join me on the platform. Today, um, we are going to ordain Adam as an elder in Cleveland Bible Church. Um, Adam has been through a, a rigorous, um, lengthy leadership development track that we have at the church. Um, Dean led him through basic doctrine of church. He's sat under various um, classes that I've had for leadership development um, over years studied carefully each of the qualifications for elder, um, and we believe has proved worthy to become an elder in Cleveland Bible Church. And so today we are going to ordain him to that end. Um, I trust this guy. He's kept me from being physically blind twice over. <laughs> he's an ophthalmologist, and he saved one eye several years ago and saved another eye a year ago or at least made provision that those eyes could be saved, or I'd be blind today. And uh, so I'm very grateful. But with that in mind, Adam, I'm going to uh, read a charge to you, and then we're going to ask you to kneel as the rest of the elders surround you and lay hands on you. But I want to charge you to take heed to yourself in accordance with the Scriptures by maintaining a close personal walk with God and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church well, to protect the flock from false doctrine from without and from those who from within would seek to divide the flock, to watch over this flock with great care, to serve not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being a lord over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. To maintain the highest Christian standard and character by being a man who is blameless, a loyal husband, a faithful father, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, self-controlled, not quick-tempered, not violent, not given to wine, not quarrelsome, not covetous, maintaining a good reputation in the community, gentle, devout, just, not self-willed, holding fast to the faithful word which you have been taught, and in so doing, and observing this charge, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. 
Will you, Adam, seek to be faithful to our Lord and to this church with the charge with which you have been charged? I will. Before we lay hands on Adam, I'd like to, he's, uh, he's faithfully ministered in our church uh, for years. He has corralled a group of teenagers and been a small group leader for them. Um, he is now beginning to move into overseeing some family and parenting ministry. He's taught in the bridge. He's involved in a variety of ministries, and it's not because he's successful in the business world that we seek to make him elder, but because he aspires to what the Scriptures declare, and he has proven himself by means of ministry. Before we lay hands on him, though, and introduce his wife, Alicia. Alicia, would you stand for just a moment? And uh, and then, uh, do you have children here in this service? Just one. Just one. Okay. The youngest of the... and and. Uh, so we are, we are thankful because this guy is going to need your support to serve in this capacity, and we thank God for you as well. So God bless you. Would you take a knee? Father, I thank you for Adam. I thank you for his life, for his integrity. I thank you for his gentle, kind spirit. For the qualities that you have built into him, Father, from childhood. I thank you for the home that he was raised in, for the parents that loved him so well. I thank you, Lord, for his aspiration to be a good husband and a good father and for the energy he pours into his family life. But also, Lord, for the widened circle of his ministry and relationships he's poured into others, students and adults alike. We pray indeed that he would be strong and courageous that he be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, that he might wear the armor of God every single day, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the girdle of truth, the sword of the Spirit. May he, O Lord, be a man of prayer. May he pray well and pray hard for this flock and those that lead with him. Would he be, Father, in your eyes, a man that you put your hand upon and fill with your Holy Spirit? And may he fight the good fight. May he continue to run the race if Jesus should tarry and finish his course. And may he keep the faith. May he, Father, dwell in unity in the bond of peace with all the brethren and the sisters of this body. Commit him to your care, and we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, brother. Adam, I'm going to ask you to be at the front after Kevin gives announcements and uh, so people can greet you. And while he's greeting the rest of the brethren, with the, you be seated. Kevin's going to make a few announcements. All right. Just real quickly as we go here. Next week, I'm going to begin a round of doctrine class, Doctrine 1. It's going to be taught over here in, actually over here in room 109 and 110 beginning next Sunday. It's a 10-week course. If you're interested in that, sign up in the foyer. It'll be taught by Stephen Burdett, um, one of the elders. Um, he'll be uh, doing that along with Alden Wycliffe. Um, so uh, we do require certain positions of leadership, teachers, and et cetera, 
um, you should know that, who you are, uh, is required to take doctrine. So this is an opportunity for you to do that and any, open to anybody who wants to go through that class. Um, big, big opportunity coming up on Saturday, April the 8th, which is the day before Easter. This is an I serve event. That means you. This is everybody, all hands on deck. We need to make a call today to help us go into the jail uh, and minister. We've been given an invitation to come and do a worship service and to preach the gospel and to minister to the inmates. Be about 500, uh, 300 men, 200 women we're going to get to minister to. Um, and so the worship team is going to be there. So Tom will be talking to those of you who are part of that. But we're going to need also at least 40 other volunteers who can go in and help serve in various ways, from sharing the good news to um, handing out some food and things that we're going to be giving them. So uh, sign up today. Uh, if you've got questions about it, what would I be doing? Uh, Chuck Bailey, the chairman for ISERV, will be out there. Um, he'll give you opportunity to sign up. But there's a time element here because you have to go through background check. They just don't let anybody go into the jail. Um, you can get there another route, but you don't want to go that route. Um, you don't have to have background check for that one. But we require you to have one. And so uh, there will be a notary. I think she's going to be here after this service. And then next Sunday, the 12th, Sunday the 19th, we'll have a notary here in between services because your form has to be notarized to get to the jail where they can do the background check. So um, if you can help us with that, um, we really, it's, I'm telling you, those who have been going in, it's a powerful, powerful opportunity to minister. If you're visiting with us today, um, we want to say thank you, and God bless you for being here. Grab a connection card on your way out the doors. They're on top of the offering box. Fill it out. Check off anything you might want more information on. We'll get back to you tomorrow. You can leave that card in the box. You can find that form.